G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and this is our final episode for the year and indeed for our second season. But what a year it's been. This time last year I was still adjusting to being a new mum when Jeffrey Inscombe, my former co-host, told me he was going to be leaving the sector to try something new. It was a little terrifying to get that news, but I'm really grateful for the years that we had working together on the podcast and for his generosity in gifting me Museopunks to continue on without him. Although his departure was the one I felt most keenly in my life, comings and goings in the sector have often seemed to be points of inflection this year that spoke to bigger issues right across the museum field. A number of prominent women and directors and curators were fired or resigned this year when facing hostile boards or leadership who, in particular, did not support the work they were doing to redress imbalances in the canon, to champion the work of artists from marginalised and excluded communities, and to provide inclusive programming. This idea of institutional change is not easy. We come across it so frequently in our discussions on this podcast. But it's been so important to take note of where these struggles actually play out. In a 2016 interview with the art newspaper, Helen Molesworth, who was one of those prominent women who was fired, notes that most museums still maintain a commitment to an idea of the best or quality or genius. And I'm not saying I don't agree with those as values, but I think those values have been created over hundreds of years to favour white men. One of the things you have to say as a curator is we are not going to present the, uh, the value that already exists. We are going to do the work to create value around these women artists and artists of colour that would just come naturally to the white male artist. This is a conversation we've been having a lot in my museum history and theory class, a course that I taught during the fall semester at GW. Every week my students and I would wrestle with the history the ideas and the paradoxes that have given shape to museum practice as we know it today. And these questions of normative values or values that are understood as natural or right, those that exist and begin to take form as the canon have emerged over time. And as we considered them, we really had to think about how and why things become regarded as museum quality objects. And much of this, as we'll discuss a little bit in today's episode, is a legacy of an imbalanced history within our sector. Despite this, despite this history, there are many institutions that are making significant efforts to address the balance of objects on display and to change the canon. And in today's episode, we look at one museum's efforts to do just that. It is a museum very close to my heart. It was just over two years since I left the Baltimore Museum of Art to join GW and one of my few regrets from that move was that I didn't have a chance to work with Christopher Bedford, the BMA's director who started only a couple of weeks after my departure. And since Chris arrived at the BMA I've witnessed huge changes within the museum from its programming and exhibition schedule through its hiring practices. These changes were no accident so today we'll find out more about them and ask if and how an institution can change its canon. Christopher Bedford is the Dorothy Wagner Wallace Director of the Baltimore Museum of Art. 
Recognised as an innovative and dynamic leader for building greater community engagement and creative programs of national and international impact, Bedford served as director of the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis University for four years prior to joining the BMA and was recently commissioner for the US Pavilion of the 2017 Venice Biennale. Previously, Bedford held the positions of Chief Curator and Curator of Exhibitions at the Wexner Centre for the Arts at The Ohio State University. Born in Scotland and raised in the United States and the UK, Bedford has a Bachelor of Arts from Oberlin College, received a Master's Degree in Art History through the Joint Program at Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland Museum of Art, and has studied in the Doctoral Programs in Art History at the University of Southern California and the Courtauld Institute of Art at the University of London. Bedford is also a noted author and contributor to publications including Art in America, Art Forum and Freeze, amongst others. Chris, welcome to Museo Punk. It's very nice to be here. It's so, so good to have you here. So you started at the BMA in August 2016, which was two weeks after I left, which for me... It's tragedy. It it absolutely was. It's actually one of my big regrets from, from when I left the BMA was that we didn't have a chance to work together. But from looking at the institution in those years since you've joined... It feels like a different institution to me. It's different in terms of its exhibitions. It's different in terms of its programming. When I think about the staffing and the dynamics of the audiences here, they feel different too. So you obviously saw a really big opportunity here at the BMA before you arrived. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this museum Mm -hmm. and why you were inspired by it? Oh, absolutely. So... um... I will go back a little bit to my own history to answer the question. I think I've been in various different contexts where uh, social justice, equity, inclusion were variously articulated as the priorities for the institution. So all the way back to, say, Oberlin College, which is the first college to admit African-Americans, the first college to admit women, a stop on the Underground Railroad, still a very radical context for political thought. I think that's probably learning art history there conditioned me to think about finding contexts that really need different sorts of work done. Yeah. Um, I would also say that being the director of the Rose at Brandeis University, yeah. which has an incredibly strong social foundation um, rooted in the Jewish faith and the desire to use positive forces to shape a better world, frankly. Uh-huh. Um, so we tried to incorporate that philosophy of new world making into a museum's program through exhibitions and acquisitions. So a pretty natural step for me was to try to find a a civic museum in a location that required the institution to change its rhetoric, Hmm. change its face, uh, turn itself inside out to serve that community. So in thinking about what my transition would be um, within the museum field, I was seeking exactly this. Yeah. Um, So to add a layer... I think this is drawing on my own history working with artists. I think that the most important, pertinent, topical work being made today is being made by an expanding group of black Americans, intergenerational group of black Americans, ranging from, you know, the recently deceased Jack Whitten, um, but then also Sam Gilliam, Howardina Pindell, um, Mel Edwards, all still living. Yeah. And then back through sort of middle generations and younger generations, Mark Bradford, yeah. um, uh, Micheline Thomas, Kara Walker, others who are sort of, who are 
proposing that art isn't just an idea of change, it's change itself. Yeah. Um, so what does that look like in a place like Baltimore, which is a black majority city? So you have this incredibly um, important creative base in these artists. You have a black majority city that hasn't always felt at home in a museum. Yeah. Like the BMA, which is over a century old. So how do you take those two factors, put them together and change an institution in order to change a city. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think one of the biggest changes that I've noticed since being here is the mission and the vision are different. I have a copy of them, so I'm going to read them out. The BMA's new mission states that the Baltimore Museum of Art connects art to Baltimore and Baltimore to the world, embodying a commitment to artistic excellence and social equity in every decision, from art presentation, interpretation and collecting, to the composition of our board of trustees, staff and volunteers, creating a museum welcoming to all. The new vision proposes that the BMA is seeking to be the most relevant publicly engaged museum in the United States and a dynamic model for all others. This is hugely ambitious. Can you talk about the process of arriving at that new mission and that new vision and how you got to really such an ambitious agenda for the museum? Uh, yes. So, so we embarked recently on a strategic planning process and I have to say that my methods of thinking and doing are completely anathema to planning. I don't like that process at all. Yes. Um, but I found it really richly rewarding. It's been led by a combination of staff and board. Um, that core has remained intact throughout the entire planning process and it was done at a very deliberate sprint so that we would, it would feel very action oriented and part of the those phases in developing what a new BMA would look like is rewriting our self-description, which yeah. is the mission and the vision. And I think I wanted to depart from those cookie-cutter descriptions of other encyclopedic museums in different civic contexts. So yeah. I was averse to the idea that a museum in a different city could be described using the same paragraph as this civic museum. Uh-huh. I wanted to make it stridently distinct, and I wanted to embrace the values that were going to guide us in the next three to five years, yes. which is what led to that language, which I haven't read in some time. So it was nice to hear you recite, and it does capture our direction. Yeah, I, I think it, it feels like a living um, mission and vision to me, and yes. it does seem, as I've reflected it in, in the museum, it, it it feels real to me, and I think that's what one of the reasons it's so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. pick up one thing from it, you talk about the composition of the Board of mm-hmm. Trustees, yeah. and of course... I know that that's something museums are often thinking about of how you change the composition of these organisations that are so invested in the institution and have histories of their own. Yeah. What's been the process for that? Well, I would say that change on this scale is only real if you enact it systemically. Yeah. So I don't think it's okay just to do one exhibition here and there and call it a day. Yeah. I think the way, if there's something that differentiates the work that the BMA has done over the past 18 months, it's the fact that we've committed to doing extraordinary work within a very, not narrowly defined range, but sort of a ruthlessly focused range of activity. Yeah. Um, so the way I think about that change is in five different buckets. So it's collections. Yep. Uh, meaning principally acquisitions, um, exhibitions, public programs, staff and board. So if you put those pieces of the puzzle together, that really is the totality of the institution from the inside out and from the outside in. 
That, that's the concept. So every one of those categories has to shift to meet the new vision. Mm-hmm. So we have a public program series, Necessities of Tomorrow, for instance, that is in tennis equity, access, social justice through the work and thoughts of artists. We have, you know about our deaccessioning process, which I'm sure we're going to talk about we at are, some point. Indeed. Um, our exhibition schedule is, is I think, pretty self-evident. Yeah. Um, the board is now fully one-third people of color. Great. Um, which is which is a substantial victory, actually, for our governance committee that really drives those efforts. Yeah. So that's been extraordinary. And we're making great inroads with staff, too, with a particular focus on curators. So um, I think the person who's most eloquent on this subject is Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation. I've heard him speak many times, and we enjoy his attention and his advocacy, too. Um, and he talks very persuasively about the need to diversify museums at the highest level of governance, so specifically the board. So yeah. you can't enact change that sticks unless that governing entity changes. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree 100% from the conversations I've had for this podcast. That seems to be a really critical theme mm-hmm. that has continued mm-hmm. through. So we mentioned the deaccessioning yes. policy. Let's talk collections. So I want to talk about how you've written about the collection in the vision. You know that it will be a compelling collection for the 21st century socially relevant, cutting-edge acquisitions, exhibitions and programs will lead the way both locally and globally and historical accuracy, merit and equity will become the basis for a new canon across our museum. Mm -hmm. Again, it's incredibly dynamic language. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that you've decided to do this was by selling seven works by white male blue-chip artists, artists like Andy Warhol and Robert Rauschenberg, to fund works by women and people of colour. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us where this came from, why this was the right solution? Mm-hmm. Well, as, again, it has to do with the the specific site of Baltimore, the mission that we've set for ourselves, the desire to properly engage a community, to represent that community within the walls of the museum, yeah. and to acknowledge that this is a black-majority city. Yeah. And it has been traditionally a white-majority institution. So those things obviously don't align to produce a new conception of audience. Yeah. So we had to make a change in our acquisition policy just as we were making a change in our exhibition policy, just as we were making a change... Um, in the way that we go about hiring and populating the board of trustees. So I think a couple of things, just to frame the conversation. We did actually go about the deaccessioning process in a really step-by-step methodical conservative fashion that aligns precisely with AAMD's mandates for deaccessioning. Yeah. So we were looking at duplication and triplication. We were looking at storage liability. We were looking at poor quality. We were looking at um, objects that had been on view very infrequently from the time they entered the collection to the present. And those things that did not advance the story that we wanted to tell. So that's the normative criteria for any deaccessioning. So each one of those seven objects met that criteria and then some. Of course, I did want to look at objects of considerable value as well, because if we were going to step through this process, we needed to accrue a sort of war chest to change the institution and to be competitive in the marketplace. That, of course, was a big part of it. And I didn't want to in any way endanger the reputation of the institution by going too far. So it became really important to go step by step. Right. What have you done with the funds from, from selling off these works? 
Well, we've now we've now finished the process of sale. Yes. Uh, we work with Sotheby's. Um, some of it was done through auction. Some of it was done through um, private sale, just as a consequence of the scale of the objects, and they were better suited to be sold privately, placed privately. Yes. Um, I think the really fascinating thing before I tell you what we did with the with the proceeds is that in, in talking with press in particular about this practice yeah. they said so you sold off the work of seven white men and you're buying all uh works by women and artists of color and i said well that's absolutely true and i do see your desire to sensationalize it that way but i also want to say that if you're looking for a combination of quality and redundancy yeah. within a museum collection and also value that will inevitably lead you to the work of white men that does yes. not that was not by design it's the design of the collection yes. that if you know as i say to invoke darren walker again he would say that the composition of a museum writ large is a consequence of the way this muse this country was formed yes around uh transatlantic slave trade right i mean the, you that everything forms around that social basis yes and so once you acknowledge that reality dark and damaging as it is it allows you to then think clearly about methods for changing the present yes so of course the collection is heavy on high value blue chip paintings by white men of course yes. that stands to reason so it wasn't by design and it wasn't intended to sensationalize it's a consequence of history yes so what we're attempting to do with the deaccessioning with those proceeds is quite literally write the ship we're writing a different art history that's based on merit and equity it's based on research and what actually happened historically, not based on prejudice. Yeah. So those people who contributed to the history of art but have not been written into it. Yes. That's our basis. So we've purchased a variety of things. Um, one I'll point to immediately, the first thing that we committed to, the second we had the proceeds, was Jack Whitten's extreme masterpiece 9-11, yeah. um, which is from 2006. And... I can talk about that at slightly more length than some of the other things, maybe, if that's of interest. I mean, I think it's really lovely just hearing about the thought processes yeah. behind these. I, yeah. I think even more than specific yeah. works, although specific works are yeah. often how these things play yeah. out. That's well, great. we wanted masterpieces, not examples. Yes. That, that, okay. was, that was a real basis here. So Jack Whitten's 9-11 was a good example. Um, Amy Sherald's Extraordinary Planes, Rockets, and the Spaces in Between and through 2018. So Amy, the artist responsible for Michelle Obama's portrait, of course. Yes. Moving in radical new directions, multiple figures, a kind of American realism yeah. for, to, for the 2018-2019 period. Um, Wengechi Mutu's uh, bronze sculpture, Water Woman, which is, I, I think has the capacity to become iconic in relationship to the museum's new becoming yeah. um and then another fabulous example is isaac julian's three channel video installation baltimore which which seemed that had to live in this museum yeah i'm actually really curious about then how much local artists are also forming part of this because so much of this is about thinking about the local community yeah. where local artists then fit into oh it's this. i mean it's an enormous part one thing i'll say about baltimore and i've never had this experience as a museum professional is that outside of New York and Los Angeles, I can engage really deeply and meaningfully with work being produced in Baltimore without there being a sliver of compromise in quality. Yeah. Or the mandate that we collect and show work that's topical, um, you know, socially engaged. So from, say, Stephen Towns, um, 
to Amy Sherald to Melvin Edwards, who now spends more than half of his time annually in Baltimore. Yeah. We have an, an incredible group of largely black American painters and sculptors, although some working in the moving image as well, whose missions as artists yeah. are almost precisely aligned with the one that we've assigned for ourselves as, as an institution. So that should come as no surprise because I think the context of Baltimore is shaping their self-imposed mandates as artists. Shanique Smith yeah. is another great example, an artist who was born and bred in Baltimore. And she says that her rhetoric as an artist is unimaginable without this city. Yeah, it's this lovely sort of cycle that then starts, that the BMA can actually feel that and, yes. and vice versa. Yes, absolutely yeah. so. So I'm curious again thinking about this idea of changing the canon, mm-hmm. because I think this is, again, a really ambitious thing. And in... in the the vision it talks about changing the canon across the museum. Yeah. Is this something that can scale out? Can, are we are we then thinking about how other institutions can also change this canon? Is this a tactic for other institutions to adopt as they think about changing their mm-hmm. canon? Yeah, I mean, I think like every other museum director, I look in at applicable models in different mm-hmm. institutions, and I try to steal the parts of those models that would work here, and sort of you know, use the Frankenstein your own museum based on the best practices of others and some invention of your own. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I do think that one of the reasons to have these conversations or go to conferences and present on the deaccessioning or board diversification or any of these interrelated subjects is to create a replicable roadmap for others. Yeah. Um, So I think sustainable change within your museum is one thing. Yeah. I think creating the hope of sustainable change in others is another thing of tremendous value. And so, I mean, I always joke in giving these talks, it seems like we had a plan um, in the retelling. And I would say that we didn't exactly have a have a plan we had a conviction yeah and a desire to change in a variety of different places and so when presented with a choice we try to make the right one yeah <coughs> that's an interesting idea so one of the things i've been thinking about um thinking about this deaccessioning and this idea of shifting the canon is actually whether by recirculating these artworks if anything it sort of reinforces the existing canon because it puts works back into circulation and whether that actually has impact on questions around desirability and access to, mm-hmm. you know, these mm-hmm. these blue chip works as mm-hmm. well. So it's one of the things when I'm trying to grapple with this idea of this model working at scale yeah. is, you know, could this deaccessioning actually shift the canon because it shifts value for women artists, artists of colour, absolutely. But does it also reinvigorate some of the market around these you know, blue chip artists. Because presumably private collectors would then see an opportunity because museums are moving in a different direction. Yeah. Um, that's that's definitely possible. What I will say is if you look at market mar- market trends over the last couple of years yeah. and the way that, say, uh, Mark Bradford is performing at the auction, yep. um, Kerry James Marshall, um, another incredible example – the way that commercial galleries are beginning to emphasize men and women of color and their rosters, the world is changing yeah. um, in recognition of a new set of priorities that I think are being institutionally determined. Now, we don't, we only participate in the market to the extent that we, like everybody else, buy and add to our collection yeah. in the way that meets our demands and mission. 
Um, so in that sense, I think museums are still really instrumental in establishing value at the highest level yeah. by committing our scholarship, our time, our resources, and most importantly, probably space on the wall. Yeah. Because nothing says important, quite like the decision to buy, yeah. add to the permanent collection and put it on permanent display. So to me, we are redefining value yeah. by, by taking that step. That's really exciting. You mentioned one of the things that you've been doing is also changing the staffing profile, particularly in the curatorial yep. area. How are you seeing that then affect decision-making in terms of the institution? Having people from different curatorial backgrounds, I'm assuming, has to be making huge impact internally around discussions in the museum. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we are hiring creative minds to fuel the museum, people who are obviously disposed to the mission that we've set for ourselves right that that's that's an imperative but i'm a big believe and i think this is an enormous conviction if you gather the right people in the room with an emphasis on diversity of perspectives you develop the most compelling program so it's actually difference yeah. that produces quality yeah. and i think in almost every field of research um you know from social science to physics to just the the makeup of a boardroom you'll find that a variety of perspectives will always outstrip a kind of a, a more um, monolithic structure. Yeah. And so we've tried to embrace that as a, as a, the structure for our brain trust. Yeah. And I think the, the more difference there is in the room, the better our program will be and it's working. Yeah. That's fantastic. What's coming up next for you as you then think about the changes? You've, you've done a huge amount in two years. Mm -hmm. What do you want to achieve over the next two years or five years mm -hmm. at, coming out of this sort of shifting mission? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I want to empower the curators that we've hired to be the creative agents that we that we imagined. Yeah. Um, I want to continue aggressively adding to the permanent collection and installing it in ways that sort of remake BMA as a new home, a new representative home for Baltimore. Um, I want to continue to make exhibitions that change the way we think about the canon. Yeah. Um, a good example of that would be a Joan Mitchell retrospective that we're co-organizing with SF MoMA that has a big and substantial tour. So um, that to me is a really profound extension of the mission of the institution. So she is in the view of many scholars the greatest gestural painter this country has produced since the Kooning. And yeah. yet the number of retrospectives given to Joan Mitchell versus Jackson Pollock yeah. tells you everything you need to know about the way prejudice is structured art history. So thrusting her contributions into the global limelight, I think is an extraordinary opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. One final question before I let you go. Mm -hmm. I've spoken a number of times about how much I can see the difference over two years. Mm -hmm. How much has the pace of change been important to how much you've been able to get done? Because it feels like so much. And I wonder if actually the desire to just get in and make change very quickly has also enabled you to make such a scale of change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a, it's a really um, deliberately not risk averse way of making change. I think we want to move fast with the expectation that there will occasionally be a mistake, but yeah. the gains will be 
innumerable as a consequence. I think that museums impose a kind of an artificial metabolism on themselves and that we have always been able to move much, much, much more quickly than we've demonstrated. And I think that Baltimore has been waiting for a very, very, very long time. And I, the, it's the conviction of the staff and the board that we're not going to make the city wait any longer. So move fast because we can. Yeah, fantastic. Chris, if people do want to find out a little bit more about this work or if they're actually interested in following along and what the BMA is doing, where can they find out? They can find out on all of our social media platforms. They can find out on our website. And uh, I think we, we, we may not be uh, as fulsome in our account of every exhibition that's forthcoming, but yeah. the program between 2019 and, say, 2021 is extraordinary. And it encapsulates every value we've discussed. That's fantastic. Chris, I will put uh, links to all of those things in the show notes. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for Thank joining us. Thank you very us. much. Ah, that's great. Thank you, Christopher. It has been really wonderful watching the evolution of this museum that I care about so deeply. Somewhat unexpectedly, the BMA has become one of my most regular hangouts with the kiddo because uh, it's a big space she can kind of run around in. And with free entry, we've been going to the BMA almost weekly since the weather turned cold here in Baltimore. Now, working on this podcast and having the conversations it has allowed me to have has been a huge privilege and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to continue it. I want to say a couple of thank yous as I wrap up the season. A big thank you to Dean Felis, Cecilia Walls, Megan Lance, Elizabeth Merritt and Robert Stein at AAM for their continued support of Museo Punks. I'd also like to thank all of my guests, my guest co-hosts and everyone who has shared their thoughts and ideas with me for the show. It is honestly one of the greatest pleasures that I have to get to have these conversations and to do so in public in ways that other people get to hear the responses as well. And I'm really grateful to you, my listeners, for continuing to listen and to support me and to get in contact when there's things that excite you or things that you wish me to dig into deeper. As the year wraps up, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off to plan for the next season, so don't expect to hear from me for a little while. But I look forward to catching up with you in 2019 to explore more of progressive practice in museums. Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at MuseoPunks or check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. I hope you have a great end of 2018.